the gibbelins eat as is well known nothing less good than man dang that lord dunsany could write a first line hi this is the tolkien professor and you're listening to fairy and fantasy class 22 our second class on lord dunsany i want us to just sort of start off with a general question i wanted to see what you've been thinking about and what you've been noticing any sort of themes or trends that you notice as we as you read through the rest of the stories in the book of wonder i know it seems my experience anyway reading this book is that they they all seem fairly random at first but they start to kind of come together uh, as a collection, it seems, towards the end. Marta, what did you notice? Um, and we were discussing this, I think, on the discussion board, and I just posted, so that's why it's on my mind. But um, the endings, how they're very morbid, many of them are. It's, it's um, particularly the Lord of the Giblins. Yes. Um, oh, he's going on this great adventure. Then they killed him in the end. Okay. Yes. Um, and I also noticed, though, if they're not morbid endings, they're kind of like a reestablishment of the status quo. You know, it's like nothing changed. Mm-hmm. There are very few, like, really happy, good. Yeah, yeah, I agree. When The Horde of the Gibbons is certainly the most overt of this, right? You know, ending with, and the tale is one of those that have not a happy ending, right? Um, right. Now, of course, and now, Mara, as you, you raise a very sensible question, where are those tales that have a happy ending, <laughs> therefore? Because you're right, very few of them do. Uh, some of them? Uh, the Bride of the Man Horse ends, it seems, more or less satisfactorily for most people involved. We're not really sure uh, what the bride feels about the situation. Um, but as he's going off to be her slave for as long as he lives, like, I, I, I guess that's a win. I don't know. Um, but it's not obviously, it's not like somebody falling eternally to his death, which happens twice <laughs> out of 14 stories, right? So that's that's good. I suppose, or getting nailed up to a wall. Um, Nuth escapes, not so his apprentice, but, you know, that's like a 50% happy ending, I guess. Um, the narrator, the unnamed narrator of the House of the Sphinx gets away, but, but, but I agree. I mean, it's, it's, none of these are sort of resoundingly, uh, happy endings. It is certainly an interesting trend. What, what do you make of that? The endings of the stories and their tendency towards, plummeting eternally towards death. <laughs> I think it's, it's almost a trend. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I saw more as kind of putting away of the impossibility of a fairy tale ending. Like, Lang's very into the, and they all lived happily ever after. Let's pretend that the ogre didn't try to eat my wife and their <laughs> children. Right. So it's, right. it's sort of... Yes, things do get smoothed over quite a bit in those, in those in, in the Lang stories, right? Where Lang tries to suspend all disbelief and say, like, oh, we can go on living happily now. Um, Dunsany sort of embraces it and says, well, life has horrible turns and endings, so fairy tales should as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it is, uh, it is definitely not sort of rose-tinted escapism. One can't accuse Lord Dunsany of that, certainly. Yeah, no, I agree. Other thoughts? Matt, go ahead. Well, it seems to me like one of the major differences between this and play is that we don't get the same kind of hubris that we do in like, you know, the, the fact that there are like, supernatural creature, I shall defeat it and profit from the excursion. Whereas with uh, Lord Dunsany, every time the protagonist decides to do something it even sounds a little bit ill-advised. 
notable exception of Miss Cubbage and the Dragon of Romance, which yeah. not only has a happy ending, but is quite rose-tinted. Yeah. No, I, I agree, and that's, I definitely wanted to come back to our friend Miss Cubbage, because I think she is a very interesting uh, figure, especially when we compare her uh, and contrast her with some of the other protagonists that we get in these later stories. Uh, uh, Thomas Shap, for instance. Um, it seems, in some ways, uh, that those two are very similar, but have radically different endings. And so, no, I agree. I think that that's, or or maybe not. Who knows? But anyway, I think that that's uh, that's definitely an important thing. Miss Miss Cubbage. That one, the ending of that is almost unresolved, I guess I would say, rather than it's having a happy, because it's not like a definitively, um, you know, as Cat points out, all obstacles are removed, and like we stop thinking about bad things that happen and live happily ever after. Like, you know, Hansel and Gretel return from the woods, the evil stepmother is dead, we forget the fact that daddy tried to abandon us to our death twice, and we all live happily ever after, right? So, that kind of thing, we, we don't see that kind of thing, even in, even in Miss Cubbage, though I do agree that that's certainly a happier ending, and a more... I mean, in a sense, it's almost a story about rose tinting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly an interesting one to think about. Jordan? One thing I thought that was pretty prominent was the idea of humbling. Like, we think we're so great at our 10th century with our gaslights and our fancy cars, and the theories are older and more primal than us, and we, the Hood of Giblins, I think, is the best example where this knight is like, oh, I'm not. I can automatically conquer a dragon because of genre rules, and <laughs> yeah. so I'm going to make one of my steam be this awesome dude, and I'm going to be a jerk to everyone, you know. But the dragon doesn't have those things. Well, he's not a jerk. He gives away gold on the way out, right? On the very sensible premise that if he do- if he doesn't return, he's not going to need it, and if he does return, he's going to be fabulously wealthy. So yeah, so yeah it's so not exactly nice because he yeah. because of the premise on which he gives it. And he's a, I'd say the letting the dragon who eats babies live. <laughs> so, we have, so we can give up pretty clearly puts on the joke but that's just me. But yeah. anyway, I mean, is he the kind of person who wants to triumph? Is this elegant, you know, person who who presumes everything and lets dragons live because he thinks it'll be better off for him? It's, it's a very humbling story. It's very, his, his pride comes tumbling down when he confronts these primal creatures and humans. Yeah, and it's it's and it's a lovely build-up to it because, of course, he knows about. Uh, the arrogance and cleverness of those. And remember, it's exactly the kind of ingenuity that is so frequently, in fact, so consistently rewarded in Lang, right, that he's showing, um, which gets him nowhere in the end. Um, and the... how emphatically he gets nowhere at the end, the sort of silent crashing down of the story. The Gibbons are just standing there and they pick him up without a word, without even smiling, and they hang him on the wall and move on, right? You know, this this is just... This is not even an interesting story to them. This is just yet another example of a guy who has come and been successfully lured in by their bait, which is all their treasure is, right? Um, if he did flood the basement, right? Exactly. So, I, but it's still, still, still hard to view that as a win in the end. But, but yes, yes, he did manage to flood the basement. Um, so yeah, I think that we can see. I, that certainly is an excellent example of that kind of that kind of pride, that kind of uh, of ingenuity, not not paying off where it probably would have seems almost certain to have done so if you were Jack the Giant Killer uh, or, or or the other and I believe unrelated Jack who climbs the beanstalk uh, and also coincidentally kills giants. 
Yes. One thing that I noticed, at least in stories where there's a character that seems to be giving themselves over to the world of fairy, it seems that it makes it clear that the fairy world is not sufficient to satisfy a human being and that it basically cuts them off from everybody makes them lonely. I mean, Thomas Schaaf goes crazy, the guy from Wonderful Window kind of kind of goes crazy too. Miss Cubbage is alone for all eternity. So Though the only problem with that is it is deemed improper by whoever sends her that note, the friend who sends her the note, right? Um, which is interesting. That is, she doesn't, we're not told that she wakes up in, in an asylum, right? Uh, nor even that it's wrong for her to do what she does. But, but yeah, it's certainly <clears throat> the interest that these stories have in the boundary between this, the world of wonder and what he calls several times in these later stories, terra cognita, right, the known world. Um, these stories are very interested in that frontier and in what happens to people who cross that frontier uh, or sort of explore the frontier in various ways. And we see these several different case studies, which I think are really interesting. Actually, before we, before we do that, I do want to talk about that. That was... Uh, I thought was one of the most fascinating uh, and persistent themes uh, of the collection as a whole. But I don't want to overlook other interesting themes before we get into talking about that. Uh, other things that you noticed, other, other, other trends or motifs that, that came to your attention? It sort of goes along with the terracotta thing, but the black abyss at the edge of the world, that water and people fall suddenly through. Yeah. Yeah, the abyss. Yeah, um, the fact that we do have two people who uh, fall into the nothingness, um, and and in other cases, I mean, even you know, as you with with the water, as you point out, there's that inexplicable chasm into which water is falling um, in the temple where the bride of the man horse is sitting. Um, we frequently get that that either an explicit reference to or that sense of this sort of bottomless gulf. Um, the world of these stories is like a flat world, which has an edge, and things are falling off or falling through uh, all the time. And I don't mean that this is a flat world in a... in a fully articulated, world-building kind of way, right? Um, we're not given instructions... Uh, you know, to envision exactly how this world works in consistent ways. Um, you know, this is not like, for instance, a flat world like Terry Pratchett's Discworld, right? Which we're given, although it's kind of silly, we're given instructions about how to envision this and how that world works, right? Um, and the whole framework of it, again, even though it's funny, um, nevertheless, we're given it in Discworld. Here we're not, right? But there is that sense of flatness. And that sense of danger that you can just fall through and into the abyss. And here I would come back, which, Taylor, I said I wouldn't do, uh, to the point that you were making, Taylor, right? That it actually, it seems to me, a kind of parallel between the danger of getting immersed in the world of wonder and the danger of falling through the world. The world, the terra cognita even, is a, a shallow world. You can fall off it, you can fall through it. And there's this abyss, that you can fall into, or that water flows into, or that you can 
you know, an edge that you can look over. Um, when we go with the prophesied one who is never named up to the city of never, right, where twilight reigns eternal and time does not operate, we have still, again, that sense of flatness, right? Terra cognita down here, and then up there, the city of never, and then in the city of never, there are these enormous cliffs leading up to that other mysterious city that the people of never, never look up at, right? They're always looking down at our world, and presumably the ones up there are looking down on it, and who knows but what there's another world up above that, right? And he, the prophesied one who will visit the city of never, uh, never sees it, never knows what it is. Um, but again, even there, that story, which is, which is an upwardly focused story and not a downward like into the abyss focused story, um, still gives that same sense, I think, of, of flatness, which is so remarkable. Even thinking back to, um, uh, to Miss Cubbage and her dragon ride up out of London, right? There's that sense of terra cognita falling away below her, um, and her sort of moving up to this, to this other level, not just moving out. Uh, so yeah, no, I think that that's a really interesting kind of motif, um, which I find pretty suggestive, especially in the way in which he depicts the mundane world. In general, it's a very flat place. Think of the first couple paragraphs of Miss Cubbage, right, and her father winning by a thumping majority, and uh, you know the, the the professional life of Thomas Shap, right, prior to his imaginative life, um, and even the life and description of the apartment of the dude who buys the wondrous window, right. Again, we see that the kind of it's very, you know, London in these stories is very dingy and stale and flat, um, and very often, emphatically so, uh, when compared with the wonderful world that you can, for instance, see through a little window, which is where the cabinet holding your tea things used to be, right? Again, how it doesn't get more prosaic than that in London, right, than the cabinet where you keep your tea things. Um, another trend that I noticed that I was really interested in is the the persistent theme of of thieves and stealing. And how many thieves we get in these stories? How many stories are interested in theft? Uh, we get Thangobrin the jeweler and, of course, the legendary Slith uh, in The Probable Adventure of Three Literary Men. Uh, the loot of Bombasharna, those are pirates, but they're still thieving, right? Uh, the Horde of the Gibbelins, of course. And then the story of the even more legendary, the sort of privately legendary, Nuth. Right? Who's even better than Slith, though Slith gets all the press. Right? Probably accentuated by how spectacular his end was, we're told. But Nuth is the real deal. Of the three master thieves that we are given in this book, Thangobrind, Slith, and Nuth, Nuth is the successful one. Right? At least the one who doesn't die at the end of his story. I call that a win. Right? Um, what do you make of this? What do you do with all the thieving? How does that seem to fit in? Any thoughts, Marta? I guess this could be a stretch, but maybe it's almost like Laura and I'm, I'm just 
kind of going off my own imagination. Maybe Lord Dunsany is trying to make us think maybe that he stole into this world and took these stories and came running back, and he's like, well, I didn't die, and neither did Newt, but everybody else did. We're the good ones. Yeah, now, there is, I think, some kind of connection, and, and, and the, the thing that makes me think in that similar kind of direction is the, the, the kind of language that he uses to describe the thieves um, he, that is, he usually uses mundane business language, right? You've got Thangabrin, the jeweler, and it's talking about him as a jeweler. Now, it's, it becomes clear after a paragraph that jeweler is a euphemism for a jewel thief, right? But he's called, he's called a jeweler all the way through, and he has a business, right? And he has clients, and he... Um, again, the language used to describe his trade, his thieving trade, is b- very business-oriented. Uh, Sli- uh, Slith, what, what, what does Slith say when, you know, his two comparatively incompetent uh, assistants, you know, make noise in the woods or something? That's not business, he says, right? And... Nuth, of course, is described in very similar ways. Like the, uh, the, you know, he, he, it's like he runs a firm, right? Um, he's a businessman in London. That is the thieving business. But I guess, I mean, in all three of those, we can see that, we can see that pretty clearly, I think. And that does sort of suggest that this, this crossing of boundaries is in some way transgressive. Um, Thangabrind, seems to genuinely belong there in that world. He's not like starting off in London and then and then journeying. Slith is making a long journey, right? Newth is emphatically London-based and then goes off into this forest, right, where the Knolls live. And we never, again, typical to Lord Dunsany, we never know who they are or what they are or what they do to people. At least with the Gibbelins, we know what they do. Uh, and what their methods are, but uh, uh, w- with the Knowles, I mean, we have no idea what his apprentice is going to suffer exactly <laughs> as his screams become increasingly coherent, and we are just left to imagine what is happening and what is going to happen uh, to Newt's uh, puffed-up apprentice. But uh, so there, you can you can clearly see the, the transgression of these boundaries being sort of for Newt sort of the ultimate, for Nuth and his apprentice, the ultimate uh, expression or manifestation of their thieving ways, right? This is the ultimate theft for them, which fails. Um, Thangabrind is also undertaking the ultimate theft. theft, uh, Thieving from the spider idol. Idol, Idols and idolatry, by the way. Another queer motif in this book, right? Um, And anyway, yeah, no, I think that's interesting. Mag? To back up Mark's theory about the thieving being kind of a metaphor for Rosensky stealing into the other world and bringing back these stories, we've got this passage in the epilogue where he actually actually says, you know, before I can tell you more stories, I have to return to the edge of the world. And if you take that along with the thing, what Slip was trying to steal was to box up stories, we we do kind of get that that picture of this is what Lord Dunsany is going to be doing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it does seem to be, um, it does seem to be conspicuous that the target of one of our great thieves, at least, is literature, poems, songs, um, because they've run out of things to sing around the fire, and so they go and uh, 
at that, that moment where they, where they crack open the box and they're indulging themselves and reading these peerless sonnets and things that no, no one has ever read before, um, you know, and who wrote them and what they're doing with them and why these marvelous poems are being hoarded at the end of the world past the place where there's the iron clasp holding together the crack in the world about which we know nothing. Uh, it, really, really, really great stuff. But, but yeah, it's, that does seem conspicuous. I agree. Um, yeah, Jordan? Um, I, when you mentioned the, the, the topic of thievery, which I hadn't considered before as a motif, but um, my first thought jumped to the myth of Prometheus and, you know, stealing fire from the gods, which seems to be... It doesn't work out for the wealth of Prometheus, and it doesn't work, terribly, work out terribly well for a lot of these people either. The, the theory is that, oh, like under gods in many of these cases, at least in their, you know, ability to raise wrath, you know, bring down wrath on the, uh, the mortals and... You know, the mortals stand up and like, hey, we let you fire too. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's an interesting parallel, the Prometheus parallel. Um, I don't think it's sort of overtly suggested. I, I would want more fire imagery to be really, to be really, uh, to be really happy with it. But certainly the idea, and also the way the gods are depicted, are is a little bit ambivalent, I think. But but still, that 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 general concept, that that concept of sort of transgressing the boundary. Um, especially sort of the boundary set upon mortals um, and crossing over even those who seem to be licensed to do so, like the unnamed guy who has prophesied to go to the city of Never and therefore enters the land we are told explicitly of immortality. Time does not apply there, right? Um, he enters the land of deathlessness and returns. But... Um, but nevertheless, we, we clearly have that, uh, that sense of transgression, that sense of rising above, above mortal limits. Um, and even though it doesn't turn out universally badly for everyone involved, certainly there are many times um, in which it does. Again, coming back, Martin, to the thing that you observed in the first place, which is that many of these stories end badly, at least for the protagonists. Um, look at the... Okay, I, sh- I shan't. I shan't resist anymore. Let's 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 talk about this thing more that we've been looking at. Look at the beginning of the epilogue. In the beginning of the epilogue, he gives us an interesting cue in that at the end of the collection, he gives the collection a subtitle. That is, it's been titled "The Book of Wonder" explicitly from the from the prologue he gave in the beginning. Uh, but he says, "Here the fourteenth episode of the Book of Wonder endeth, and here the relating of the chronicles of little adventures at the end of the world." Which is, it seems to function as a kind of subtitle for this collection, The Chronicles of Little Adventures at the Edge of the World. And, of course, once he says that, and you think back to it, you can see the edge, the boundary, is definitely something that this book has been interested in quite a bit. Um, you know, this, this, this frontier, this edge, appears in many of the stories, you know, in different ways. Whether it's, uh, for instance, the Horde of the Gibbelins, the Gibbelins, we're told, in the middle of the story are from the moon, actually, right? And their tower sometimes returns there and sometimes comes back, but it's, it's, it's right on the edge of a river. What river is it on the edge of? Anyone recall? Yeah, yeah, exactly. As Homer knew. Those of you who have just read the Iliad recently, it's always fun to tease people who are also in my Foundations class. Uh, 
Do you remember where we see the, the, the river ocean girdling the world? Isn't it depicted on Achilles' shield? Yes, yes, it's on Achilles' shield. It's the thing that goes around the edge of Achilles' shield in Book 18 of the Iliad. Uh, the river ocean which bounds the world. That's what he's quoting from in Greek there, I believe, that passage. Um, and so, yeah, right on the edge of that is where the Gibbelins come in. So he is explicitly, uh, and here, Mac, I would go back to the point that you made about the the literary connections, right, by bringing up Homer uh, here is, 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 I think, sort of an interesting, uh, and the repetition of it, not just saying, I want you to think like Homer, but the second reference to Homer, as Homer knew, um, right, putting it in this explicitly literary context, this explicit uh, sort of storytelling context, as, of course, the Horde of the Gibbelins is one of the most um, literarily focused of all of the stories. Jordan, as you mentioned before, uh, the way that the protagonist um, makes use of generic conventions, right? Um, evil dragon, there is no point in our even fighting because, of course, you know that evil dragons never defeat honorable knights. And so, therefore, why don't you just come quietly and we'll skip the fight? And the dragon concedes, right? Yes, it's true. Evil dragons never win. I might as well give in, right? Um, you know, the way that the characters in this story are drawing attention to the generic conventions of the kind of story that they're in. And exploiting them, as 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 Alaric, the 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 main character, is definitely trying to exploit them, unsuccessfully in the end. But anyway, it was a good effort all the way up to that point. But anyway, we have the river ocean. It's the river ocean that is being let into the cellar, the emerald cellar. It turns out of the Gibbelins. Um, so so that it, from in their tower, which is sometimes on the moon and sometimes not. Um, but of course, you also notice that it's not just that when we when we go into the river ocean and we access the Tower of the Gibbelins, um, it's this is not really a question of just like completely leaving you know entering into a, an incomprehensible other world, right? The Gibbelins, in fact, operate on a very worldly basis, a very standard basis. They, what are they motivated by? Just hunger. They're just hunters. Right, they're, they're, you know, they have this fabulous tower which is full of fabulous gems, and we're told this is to them nothing but a snare. I mean, this is exactly this to them is exactly like you know a hunter putting a little treat uh, inside of a noose set up in a field, you know, for a rabbit or something. Um, I mean, this is that's all it is to them, um, and their motivations are entirely base, almost bestial. Again, and I think in the silence of their capture of the protagonist at the end, we can see that same kind of thing. They don't gloat over him. There's no final speech. Ah, you thought you could outdo the Gibbelins, but no, your feeble human wit is to... They don't care. They just come in and they're like, ah, food. Right, something sprung the trap. Um, and they go down and collect it. Any more than the hunter would gloat over the rabbit caught in this... Ah, you thought you could outwit me, rabbit, but I, the hunter, was too much for you. No, they would just come and say, ah, rabbit, right? I shall club it and bring it home. I mean, that's the attitude, and it's the attitude of the Gibbelins. Um, and of course, why does this snare work? What motivates our protagonist to go? What always motivates people to go to the Tower of the Gibbelins? Greed. Yeah, greed. Just avarice. Their own base desires which are so predictable that they can be routinely snared. 
Sometimes the Ghibelins have to be a little bit more aggressive about it, or like leaving a trail of rubies leading to the tower, right? But still, it always works. And our protagonist, who is like, I am doing different things, and I shall make a totally different approach, and I shall be unlike any other person who's ever attempted to, to take the tower of the Ghibelins, and so therefore I shall succeed. At the end, he's the same, and he's motivated by the same thing, and he's falling into exactly the same trap. Um, so in the end, it's all very simple. Um, it is like, again, it's like the story of a hunter and a snare. Um, and so again, I think in that way we can see not only the Tower of the Ghibelins positioned geographically at the edge of the world, on the edge of the river ocean, um, but we can see also this kind of examination of the wonderful and the worldly. Uh, you know, the whole, we desire to get food for our larder and I desire to get gems in order to be rich, um, these are very terra cognita things, right? So in one sense, the Ghibelins, the tower, the, 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 the wondrous tower of the Ghibelins is certainly very firmly in terra cognita on both sides. Both sides of that transaction are. Yeah. Jordan? Um, there's also a lot more of this whole mundane, fantastical juxtaposition going on. If, for example, when, um, the, when the night is... Everyone's cheering the night on, they're happy, except the money lenders who are afraid they will be paid. Or the Gladsome Beast eats the cabbages of fairy, or no cabbages. Oh, I love the Gladsome Beast, who ruins the cabbages. Uh, yes. And also, he eats man. Uh, Lord, Lord Dunsany has such a knack for those little throw-off sentences. And also, he eats man. One of my favorite sentences uh, uh, in, in the whole book, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, that story, uh, the, the quest of the, king, of the queen's tears, um, is a... Is a it's funny, almost all the adjectives that I want to use are like ironic under the circumstances. Like I want to say wonderful, fantastic, marvelous, um, all of them perfectly appropriate in their literal senses uh, and not expressive of very much. Um, uh, but it, it, is, it is a tremendously evocative story. And another example, even when it doesn't end tragically, they still end anticlimactically, right? But she didn't cry, the end. Right, she's the only one not crying of the tears falling like a rain from the balconies, right? Uh, and yet, she does not cry. Uh, the gladsome beast, the slaying of the gladsome beast. Uh, but it is a happy ending because the cabbages are safe. Right, the cabbage farmer is delighted. My cabbages, my cabbages. Yep, yep. <laughs> um... And the other places where we can see, again, this, this interest in, in the boundaries uh, between the mundane and the wonderful, um, even, even a story as odd within the collection as the loot of Bombarshana, for, uh, Bombarshana for, ans- for instance, is, I think, interesting in this way. Right? I mean, that is, it's, it's, it's odd in the sense that most of the time it doesn't seem like a story of wonder at all. Right? Nothing takes place in any kind of fantastic world. We just have these pirates right, who are famous and very successful pirates. Um, and they sack the city of Bombarshana, which you can tell by its name, uh, is a wondrous place. Um, all wondrous things have wondrous names in Lord Dunsany, by and large, uh, except the people like Slith and Nuth. Um, not everybody can be Thangobrind. But um, uh, anyway, but, then they, but, but they do have this floating island, 
right? Which, like, motors around. Well, this isn't motor, they sail it, right? But, but still, <clears throat> there's this one, and so there you have literally boundaries being changed, right? They'll, they'll, they'll take their island and they'll, they'll, uh, anchor it up next to a mainland, and therefore, you know, sort of the, ba- the boundaries will, the boundary of that land will now include the little mysterious island from which they will get sacked and, and the little island will take off again, right? Um, occasionally, some other ship will land on the mysterious island to its cost. And that was one in which I was expecting to end badly, right? I was waiting for the, uh, for the, the pirates to get caught and things to go poorly for them as it happens with almost all of the thieves, uh, in the book. But it doesn't. Uh, I guess nothing goes badly for him except apparently his relationship with the queen, um, which he wishes were going better. Uh, but that's all. <laughs> but that's all. Um, Anyway, I want to come back and do a careful comparison of four protagonists, um, which, as I, which I've mentioned before, but I think that there's something important to work out here. Um, that is, first of all, the dude who makes the journey up to the city of Never, the prophesied one who rides the hippogriff up to the city of Never, Miss Cubbage, Thomas Shep, and the guy who buys the window and puts the wondrous window in his apartment. Now, thinking of these four characters, similarities and differences, what do you notice? What's important here? There's some obvious overlap, some of which we've talked about before. Both Thomas Shep and Miss Cubbage, for instance, seem to leave the mundane world behind and enter imaginatively into the, into the world of wonder. This seems to turn out very badly for Thomas Shap. Not obviously so badly for Ms. Cubbage. Clearly, our prophesied hippogriff rider leaves the world behind and enters into the world, the, the city of Never. But he comes back and it's okay, other than being a little bit disappointed that he couldn't get to the other city too. What do you think? What, why does, why does Thomas Shap go mad and Miss Cubbage doesn't? Or does she? What do you think? Well, Miss Cubbage doesn't really return from it. I think it, a lot of, a lot of that's linked to them returning. Because right. all of them, except Miss Cubbage, go and come back. Right. Now, Shap doesn't return. Thomas Shap doesn't return. We return. The narrative returns. Right? And we get the frame, the final frame of the narrative in his cell in the asylum. Um, but he's not returned. As he is still standing there regally at his coronation in his asylum cell. Right? And then, you know, the warden is like, pretty bed, nice bed. And then he lies down, clearly in state on his royal bed at the end of his coronation day. Um, mentally, he's not returned. But nevertheless, I think that it's important, Kat, what you're saying, because we do. The story does. When Miss Cubbage, we get a brief glimpse back, right? That is that letter that she receives from somebody at home. But it certainly isn't as jarring and emphatic a return as we get at the end of, 
of, of Thomas Schaap. And what it doesn't seem that we get there is this sense that what she's done is really bad. It's not proper for her to be alone, we're told, or at least informed by her mundane correspondent at the end, but that just points to a difference in social convention, it seems. And it seems quite likely that the mundane correspondent doesn't understand. Whereas here, we get a pretty, with Thomas Schaff, we get a pretty clear cue. This is bad. Harmful, anyway, to him. Let me ask this question a different way. Is Thomas Schaff the inevitable end? Is Thomas Schaff the mundane version of somebody plummeting off into the abyss? Which happens in other stories. When we end in the world of wonder, is it, in fact, madness to invest oneself imaginatively in the world of wonder? Is that a bad thing? As obviously, in the case of Thomas Schaap, is fantasy dangerous, according to these stories, according to Ward Dunsany? I'm going to get a sense of, like, if you're willfully you're taking yourself there and disregarding everything else, it's not good. But if you're doing it, if like someone's doing it to you, a good story or a dragon is taking you there, <laughs> right. it's not so bad. It can be a great thing. That, I think, is an interesting difference between Thomas Schaap and Miss Cubbage, right? She is taken. She is transported there. Um, she was minding her own business. In fact, she was sitting for her portrait. Uh, a more kind of shallowly mundane thing one could not have been in the middle of doing, right? Um, and she is taken, doesn't seem quite against her will, but anyway, she is transported. Whereas Shap is deliberately building up this world as an alternative to his world. Does that seem right, Mac? Oh, uh, I think the primary difference is that Shap only has uh, he's actually the only person in all of these stories, with the arguable exception of the guy who likes the window, that has no bodily contact with the other realm. He just starts imagining it, and he doesn't actually go anywhere. Right, right. So, so I don't think it's that the fantasy is dangerous, or the fairy is dangerous, or to try and get to yourself is dangerous. I think of being split like that. Being split is certainly what we see being emphasized by Thomas Shap, right? That's that last image of him that we have. He thinks this one thing is going on when, in fact, we see another thing is actually happening to him, right? Um, and that kind of split, I don't think we really get elsewhere. Now, of course, one could do um, a cynical kind of reading of many of these other stories and say, well, Thomas Shap is just the only one that we see the mundane version of. That Miss Cubbage is probably locked up somewhere too, it's just that we don't get the wardens in the last scene. I think one could, one could definitely construct that. Um, just as one could, 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 you know, one could easily fit a padded cell for the prophesied one who goes to the city of Never too. I mean, like, if you wanted to do that. We don't get that in the story. Um, but I agree, that is, again, if one were building a cynical uh, a cynical version of it, one could say, well, nobody really goes to the world of wonder. Um, everybody's doing a Thomas Schaap, really. It's just Schaap is the only one for whom we see this happening. Now, I don't agree with that cynical reading, but one could do it. Um, hmm? There's not really any evidence for a textual uh, 
Because it, it says, you know, they go. Well, Thomas Shadwick always says he imagines. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, what would the rest of you say? If I were to say the story of Thomas Shaft, the coronation of Thomas Shaft, this is the central story. This is the place where sort of the rug is pulled out, you know, where the veil is pulled back and we see really this land of wonder stuff in the end, like to a greater or lesser extent, you're doing a, you're doing a, you're doing a Thomas Shap. Again, I say, I don't agree with this reading, but what would you say? How would you, how would you refute that? How does that, why, if you think it doesn't fit, that that doesn't seem to be the kind of story. What's different about the other stories, exactly? Marta? Um, for this, I think the emphasis is kind of like what Max said. It's he imagined it. He pretended. I feel like Lord Dunsany is saying with the other stories, this is true. He is making this part up while these other stories, these are, they actually happened. She was actually taken, Mrs. Cubbage, you know, um, the idols in Shemlish and Chubu, they're real. I mean, they're, they're real, but, but Thomas Shap, he made up his world, so... Chubu sometimes gives the narrator the ace of trumps, so you can see that it's real. Yes, yes. <clears throat> I agree, I agree. Um, and I think the place that I would go to in the Thomas Shap story to emphasize, Marta, that point that you're making, and Mac, that you were making also, is that moment when Thomas, when we're told Thomas Shap knows that he's making this stuff up, he knows that these people that are serving him don't exist, but he likes that better. Uh, he is more pleased by the fact that he invented all of these people who are bowing down to him than he would be had they actually existed, right? Or had he actually discovered them? Um, and he goes, it, the, the narrator stops shy of saying that he pictures himself as a god. He doesn't actually use that word. Like he pictures himself as a king or, you know, something else. But it's in the context of him talking about him being the creator of this world, right? And he has enthroned himself not just as the local king, but as the god of this whole world. I think if, in fact, you know, some of these other characters were made up by someone like Chubu and, you know, the other idols, they were, they have now their own independent agency, and that's not something that Thomas Schaap is allowing his creation. He's not letting it grow and be what it, and be itself. He's exerting control over it as, you know, more of a tyrant even than a king. Yes, yeah, definitely. In the end, Thomas Schaap's story, the story that he is writing, is it's all about himself, right? He's the ultimate version of the the arrogant protagonist that that people have been talking about earlier, right? He sets himself up as the deity. The other people, they aren't telling stories about themselves, right? Even the one who is like the prophesied goer to the city of never, he's not, it's still not about him. It's about the discovery of the city of never, even though he is like this semi-messianic figure who, you know, crosses the boundary and goes up. It's still not all about him. It's about the city and about what he's seen. And of course, in the end for him, it's about what he doesn't see and what he can't see and what he can't get to, right? Miss um, Covage, it's not about her. In fact, what she gets is self-forgetfulness from that moment where she's sitting for her own portrait, right? 
um, this very sort of self-focused, self-aggrandizing moment as her, you know, with her, with her politically successful dad and, and, and her socially successful family. And she leaves all of that behind. So I do think that's an important trend. Beskin? I think this is that one story where it's, it's a warning. Don't try to put yourself in this world. You don't understand these worlds. I'm just giving you what I know. You know, you can't actually comprehend it to that level, and you're going to get ruined. You're going to go crazy yeah. with this guy. Yeah. Um, and so just go with me, and don't try. Don't be punished at. Yeah, yeah, and 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 the other guy who does the same thing is the guy with the window, right? You can't cross the boundary. Don't try to do that. Don't try to rip the window out and reach through it. Even though now, of course, he does it for very different motivations, and he doesn't go crazy. He's not trying to make himself tyrant. He's not building himself up. In fact, his desire is almost self-sacrificial, right? I'm gonna. I, I just want to. I I, I want to help preserve the city. I want to fight and maybe risk himself for fighting for this city that he's come to love, which, remember this, what's the symbol of it? Golden dragons. Golden dragons, just like Miss Covich, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, you, you try to cross that boundary, remember that, that thieving motif again, right? You try to reach across there and you rip out the, the lead of the, of the wondrous window and it's gone. It's gone. Now again, not as disastrously as it is with Thomas Shap, but... Um, okay, let me wrap up in a minute. In one sense, I think that lo- what Lord Dunsany does in this book, he's sort of, I mean, he's telling stories in a sense, but he, he, the stories that he tells are never really, I say in a sense because they're not really satisfying um, as stories on their own. If you receive Lord Dunsany's stories coldly or passively, they're not going to do much for you. I mean, you know, like just to take as an illustration the end of the story of Slith when he throws himself, not falls, but throws himself into the abyss. Um, when, the, when the light, you know, uh, some hand in an upper chamber lit a shocking light, lit it and made no sound. For a moment it might have been an ordinary light, fatal as even that could very well be at such a moment as this. But when it, be, when it began to follow them like an eye and to grow redder and redder as it watched them, then even optimism despaired. And Sippy very unwisely attempted flight, and Slorg even as unwisely tried to hide. But Slith, knowing well why that light was lit in that secret chamber and who it was that lit it, leaped over the edge of the world and is falling from us still through the unreverberate blackness of the abyss. And if you think I read that just to be able to read the unreverberate blackness of the abyss again, you're only half right. Um, <laughs> we, again, if you're just passively receiving these stories, it's, I mean, you're just going to be seeing this, wait, wait, what, what hand, what light, who did it, why, what on earth makes Slith throw himself off to like starve to death falling into the abyss? Um, we don't know, and you're never told. And there's so many times when we're not told what's going on. Any of this stuff, these, his stories leave tremendous holes to be filled. What he does is not satisfy, but provoke and invite our own imaginations and our own investment. In his epilogue, he ends with an explicit invitation to come along on the caravans to the edge of the world to get more of these stories. Uh, in its way, I actually think that how one came as was foretold to the city of Never uh, is, is almost sort of like the ultimate form of, of Lord Dunsany's storytelling. Um, but, uh, but anyway, this is what, you know, what, what uh, J.R.R. Tolkien called the essential quality of fairy stories, that they are not about possibility, but about desirability. 
is what I think Lord Dunsany does supremely well. I will let you go. We will begin The Princess and the Goblin for next time. All right, thanks for listening. For the next class, be sure to read the first ten chapters of George MacDonald's The Princess and the Goblin, a work of fantasy which may well seem quite mundane compared with Lord Dunsany. Also, don't forget to check out the spring course offerings at the Mythgard Institute. I'm getting really excited by the turnout for our Lewis and Tolkien course and our Harry Potter course, and there's still time for you to join in the fun. Go to www.mythgard.org to find out more information. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.